You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm asking for fair play, and I thought I was here to talk about my views on education or on getting his deficit. Bush didn't think he'd have a problem with Dan Rather. Knew him from Texas. He was a friend. But the campaign had been tipped off that CBS may be out for blood on linking Bush to the Iran-Contra scandal. George Bush didn't see it. His aides, he thought, were too uptight. This panicky campaign. Dan was a friend. He'd been over, he the, been house, over the house, met Barbara, met Barbara played, tennis. played tennis with him. Roger Ailes, the head of all things media in Bush 1988, this is about 10 years before he's going to be news director of the network started by Rupert Murdoch. He makes sure to meet Bush's plane right before the interview. Okay, okay, talk to your friend, do this interview, George, but if he goes after you, here's what you say. If I was looking for an easy life, I wouldn't be running for president of the United States. We cannot afford a trillion dollar misadventure into space. Maybe you better look at your own record first. My message of making a difference, my message of strong leadership. What the hell? I mean, Star Wars will only cost 90 or 100 billion dollars. Let's do it. My message of deficit reduction and honesty and integrity. Where are you going to get the money? I don't say what the hell. I say maybe in spite of hell we should do it. Well, whatever. I don't have any money. I don't have pollsters or consultants. We cannot afford a trillion dollars and a misadventure in the Star Wars with so many Earth hazards. you got to be willing to stand your ground So you decided that you'd better move to the right on defense and a lot of other issues. 600,000 farmers driven from their land. And lately you've been sounding more like Al Haig than Al Gore. I have the power of ideas and I can govern this country. One-fourth of the people who say that, you know, they rather like you, believe you're hiding something. He notices, as the promo comes on TV, that this is going to be about Iran-Contra, where CBS had said originally that the interview was not to be about that. Dan Rather came on guns a-blazing. You have said that if you had known, you said that if you had known this was an arms-for-hostages swap, that you would have opposed it. Bush says, the Rodriguez testimony that you put on there, I just think outrageous. Never talk to me about the Contras. You know what I'm hiding? What I told the president. That's the only thing. I don't think he's done anything wrong. I don't think Greg's done anything wrong. Dan Rather then says, "Uh, Mr. Vice President, you say that we've misrepresented your record. Let's talk about the record. If we misrepresented your record in any way, here's a chance to set it straight right now. We've set it straight on one count because you implied from that little thing that I, I have a little monitor sitting on the side here that I didn't tell the truth. And I thought I was here to talk about my views on education. The president first. created this program as testified or stated publicly he did not think it was arms for hostages. Talk the president has, has spoken for himself. I'm asking you to speak Please. for yourself. And a member of your own staff, Mr. Craig Fuller, has verified, and so did the only other man there, Mr. Near, underscored with you that this was a straight-out arms for hostages. What they were doing. How do you you reconcile? And then, unexpectedly, Bush says this. It's not fair to judge my whole career by a rehash on Iran. How would you like it if I judge your career by those seven minutes when you walked off the set in New York? It's not fair to judge my whole career by a rehash on Iran. How would you like it if I judge your career by those seven minutes when you walked off the set to the New York. Well, now, would you like that? Later, Roger Ailes will say that there are certain moments that define campaigns. You know, you have JFK versus Nixon in those debates. 
You have Gerald Hoare and his gaffe that he made on Eastern Europe. In this case, it wasn't a debate with a candidate, but Bush had taken it to somebody that his own base, the Republican base, really didn't like very much. Now, would you like that? Ailes and others attributed it, this Dan Rather confrontation, to Bush having a chance at all, especially because, rather or not, Bush was going to lose Iowa. And I started thinking as I was coming over here, why is it that Joe Biden is the first in his family ever to go to a university? Why am I the first Kinnick in a thousand generations to be able to get to university? Joe Biden didn't feel he needed any salvation from the first round of questions about him using Neil Kinnock's speech, even as videotaped comparisons of Joe Biden speaking and then Neil Kinnock speaking were featured on television. Why is it that my wife is sitting out there in the audience is the first in her family to ever go to college? Why is Janice the first woman in her family in a thousand generations? I mean, who cares about this? So Joe used a speech from a guy he admired. He credited him on most occasions. But yes, at the Iowa Fair, next to the butter cow, he forgot to. No big deal compared to Bork, compared to the future of the Supreme Court. The judge's responsibility is to discern how the framers' values, defined in the context of the world they knew, apply in the world we know. There's a candidate running in the election who can stop Bork. Not a thing Dukakis can do about that. Not a thing Gephardt or Jesse Jackson can do about that. Only Biden. The Bork hearing was going to be the tough obstacle, but also a good opportunity for their guy. As for Kinnick, it didn't seem like this was coming as part of Biden's campaign for president. If any politics were, were operative here, this story they thought about it was about Bork. It was maybe a signal from the Reagan White House. You go after our judge, we go after you, if it was anything at all. It was so strange that the first piece to come out by journalist Maureen Dowd they had the story pretty quick. They seem to have that videotape, all the networks, pretty pronto. The team still feels this doesn't matter. Biden beats Bork. Biden gets the nomination. Don't screw up, they think, in Delaware. The same thing Jesse Jackson is thinking on February 26, 1984, in snowy New Hampshire. When he walks into Temple, Adith Yeshura, he's feeling like he's at a breaking point. Don't screw up, Jesse. This is the worst scandal he's ever faced. Later, he's going to describe the scene as Daniel in the lion's den. Because of an incident in the 84 campaign. He had an off-the-record conversation with Washington Post reporters where he referred to New York City as Jaime Town. He first denies that he said it all, a simple, I did not do this. Then there's too many people that heard it, and he says, why are you making such a big deal out of this? He does everything but apologize. His wife doesn't want him to apologize. His key aides don't want him to apologize. Apologize now and your campaign is over, they think. You'll accept the scandal. But he feels differently. He tells one of his aides, the quickest way between two points is a straight line. And here in New Hampshire, he says, In private talks, we sometimes let our guard down, and we become thoughtless. It was not in a spirit of meanness. It was an off-color remark having no bearing on religion or politics. But however innocent and unattended, it was wrong. So what he tries to say, Jackson, is that in describing New York City as H-Town, he was making a kind of colloquial remark that someone who was an African-American in Chicago would make. Italian-Americans have their little things they say. He even goes as far to tell one magazine that there are places you could go to shop in Chicago and they wouldn't allow African-Americans in. Let's say you wanted to buy a suit. Wouldn't have let African-Americans in. So you had to go to, say, Hyman and Sons. And it would be there that you could get a suit or a coat. Far from an insult, he suggests, this is a compliment. 
about the community that would provide a service to them. But for many, it was not enough and not an apology at all. There were a couple leaders that were willing to take that script and maybe some of the more reformed Jewish community. Okay, dumb thing that Jesse said, leave it at that. But Alexander Schindler, the president of the Union of American Hebrew Congregations, said that his apology was made belatedly and it didn't acknowledge the gravity of his language and the damage that it did. This is combined, oh so combined, with Jackson being supportive, the only candidate in the race right now, being supportive of the United States talking to the PLO, of opening up an avenue of communication to Yasser Arafat. He visits Beirut, and there's a picture of him next to Arafat. For those in the Jewish community in America, this is a terrorist. We're five years from Arafat being at the White House. Put that aside. In 1988, that's still his status. He enters the 1988 race with this on a lot of minds. Biden has his idea in mind. They think, I'm going to go for the jugular with Bork. They're going to attack, and I'm going to do the opposite. Sure enough, Alan Simpson, senator from Wyoming, one of the ranking members of the Judiciary Committee, attacks Biden right off the bat for lack of objectivity. These self-important senators acting as the judges of judges, Simpson said, it's wrong. But Biden plays it the opposite. He gives Bork, and he's going to give Bork, such a fair hearing. Let him talk. Let him say everything he wants which will be so scary to the constituents of many of these senators. He holds up the gavel in the Senate hearing, shows it to Judge Bork, and says, this gavel will protect your right to speak, your right to be heard. He asks him several times during the hearing, are you able to say everything you wish to say, Judge Bork? He wants to make sure he gets everything out. You have every right to make your views known as long as it takes. You have every right you deserve. This is a guarantee from me. And he says it with a smile. He has to deal, though, with an issue. He's already said out in Iowa that he's going to vote against Bork. Yes, I've made a judgment myself. Those who are supporting Judge Bork, Biden points out, have also made up their mind. They do it with passion and principle, too. I don't doubt it for a second. In terms of the advertising, the TV ads that are attacking Judge Bork right now, I don't want to associate myself with any of that. Biden lays out his position. It's a good speech. Maybe a little overselling, but pretty good to avoid that charge of partisanism. Here's Ben Kramer from What It Takes. As Biden swang into his questions, he knew exactly how he had to be. The eager student trying to understand, you know, in common words. Why was it that the venerated judge, I'm not trying to be prickly here, why did Bork think it was okay to put cops in our bedroom? Bork fell into the quicksand. Bork says, oh, not entirely, but I'll straighten it out. I was objecting to the way Justice Douglas deemed the right to privacy and explained on and on in legalese as Biden nodded. Bork, using neutral, constitutional language, big legal terms. Biden talking about cops. And bedrooms. Biden was on the verge of getting everything that he wanted in this most important political test. Except that we want to honor our undertakings in full. In the Neil Kinnock issue started exploding. Tom Donnell and one of his aides remembered being asked about law school allegations like, okay, he plagiarized Kinnock's speech. Now we found that in law school he did some of this. And he goes to um, James Biden, the senator's brother. Oh, yeah, that. And Donilon's like, what do you mean, oh, yeah, that? You remember Joe saying he'd been accused of cheating? Yeah, he cribbed legal notes in Syracuse. So what happened is, in his paper, he wrote a, a paper that he submitted as a student. Totally his own thoughts, his paper. But the legal notes, he used the notations and references from someone else. And a law student was checking his work and noticed that. They had students check each other's work, and this student reported it to the dean. There was an investigation, and Syracuse decided he had to retake the class. Syracuse University, when questioned, insisted it wasn't plagiarism. But the fact that they had to be asked at all created another news story. If it was plagiarism, they said, Biden would not have graduated. 
He had to fly up a lawyer to Syracuse to get the records, bring it down for all the reporters, makes a press conference. Ladies and gentlemen, I've been dumb. I did something stupid 23 years ago. And here's what he said later. I couldn't figure out why I was living off extra strength Tylenol. During one of the hearings, he had to excuse himself between one senator's time talking about Bork and in giving time to another so he could take a pill. The Senate hearings were long, witnesses on both sides, constitutional talk, and Biden sat there listening with a headache. He couldn't let them see the chomp, another extra strength Tylenol, more question. And when he was done during the day, there were more questions to answer at night. His staff was now as bad as the press at the way that they looked at him. Did you really take a stand on civil rights like you said? Did you really win that debate contest you claim? What's your IQ? Someone had found a tape from last year during a New Hampshire speech. Biden had turned to a voter and said, I bet my IQ is better than yours. That tape is resurfacing now. What was the IQ, Senator? They do find a plaque about that debate contest, a, a trophy that shows that Biden did win the debate contest. He still had it. Cross that one off. But it seemed like every day, every time they proved something, something else was coming. And not only did he have the Bork hearings to worry about, but he's had no time that the other candidates are getting in Iowa and New Hampshire. And then began the saga of the videotape, the original videotape, that apparently was sent to reporter and columnist Maureen Dowd. Clarion call for my New York Times, Des Moines, Iowa, September 1987. A feud began brewing between the campaigns of Senator Joseph Biden and Richard Gephardt of Missouri after published accounts that Biden had used part of a speech by a prominent British politician without giving him credit. Sources in the Biden campaign said that they suspected Gephardt. Joseph Trippi, Gephardt's national campaign director, said, It wasn't us. Now, what is an issue of Biden and his possible character. The issue brought into the fray by Gary Hart's behavior now is an issue of campaigns and campaign ethics. There's every day there's something. An article says that in Chapel Hill, Biden said that he never voted for tuition tax credits. But according to a legislative report issued by the NEA, he did in 1978. So Biden is now under fire. He faces a choice. And the first thing he does, he goes to the Judiciary Committee. Do you guys want me to step down as chair during these hearings? I'll recuse myself. And maybe Kennedy can lead this. No. Not Kennedy. Not Heflin. Nobody wants that. Stay as chair, Senator Biden. In fact, he's doing a lot better as chairman than he is in the campaign. One of Biden's interns later recounted when Biden became vice president. From my modest vantage point, I watched Mr. Biden struggle to focus the hearings on Judge Bork's judicial philosophy rather than his private life, in the face of overwhelming pressure from groups on the left to do the other. He insisted that he would not tolerate ad hominem attacks. When asked to subpoena his video rental records, Biden refused. Those video rental records were leaked and showed up in the Washington City paper. Judge Bork, it showed, had a weakness for Cary Grant movies. Team Biden wished that his only problem was Cary Grant movies. One aide said it was flood at Gates now. It wasn't really from the Wolf Pack. It wasn't from the Scribblers, the reporters that follow around campaigns that said, we don't really like this story. This doesn't seem like enough here. So what? He copied a British guy's speech. But it was a video story, a TV story. The guys that took out Hart didn't want to take out Biden. But Biden on video compared to Neil Kinnock, too hard to resist. There'll be other presidential campaigns, and I'll be there, Oliphant. I'll be there. There will be other opportunities. There'll be other battles in other places, other times, and I'll be there. And just like that, two leading Democrats are out of the race. His sister, his brother, very strong in this decision. They wanted to campaign. They just didn't feel it could continue. The two aides that had initially set up Biden's campaign got over everything they thought, didn't want to do it anymore. Unless they were going to run a campaign on the issue of plagiarism, this campaign was going nowhere. There is an internal battle, though, of the consultant. Pat Cadell has a breakout session where he's calling up Biden's brother Jim and yelling at him. The aide, some leaking to some newspaper reporter that he continues to talk and Cadell still got Biden's ear. Cadell wants him to continue to run. When Hart left, 
There was celebration mixed with a few people upset because they wanted to beat Hart. When Biden leaves the race, this is two down now. There's some sadness. The vice chair of the Democratic Party of Iowa says, this has become the little bighorn and nobody will be left. This is a fireball. This is a slugfest, an Iowa paper said. Dukakis now fondly says, campaign has lost its zing, pizzazz, without Biden. These debates are not going to be the same. Crocodile tears, some note. Gephardt, it won't be the same without Joe. Would he have said that a few weeks ago? Gephardt is still reeling, though, as somehow being tagged as the guy that did it to Biden, that put the knife in his back. He went up and down his campaign, interrogating everybody. No one did it. No one knew anything about this, leaking such a story. He's got people now coming up to him in Iowa where he had been doing well, like... Why'd you do that to Joe? Joe Biden is martyr is stronger than Joe Biden was as candidate. And he will lift you up on eagle's wings and bear you on the breath of dawn and make the sun to shine on you. This country's going to be lifted up and I'm going to play a big part in doing it. It wasn't us. Gephardt keeps saying, we didn't do it. We wanted to come up with signs that said, it wasn't us. From P.J. O'Rourke, Parliament of Horrors. Who is to blame for the grim state of affairs in the 1988 election? How about the media? Most things seem to be the media's fault. Who knows how to make this election more trivial than it already was? The only question answered in the debates was, which one of you is which? We've forgotten the answer. Nor can we blame the candidates. They were just looking for work. Something we expect every able-bodied adult in this society to do. Now the guilt is to be found a little closer to home. It's us. We wanted a poly, unsaturated, salt-free election candidate slate. Otherwise, we wouldn't have been out on the lawn rolling in every sticky detail of the candidates' lives. You know, O'Rourke in his book is demonstrating a real feeling, comic or not, that something is just missing here. Are these really the people that we get to choose from to be president, even if there is, like, 20 of them? It didn't take long for the press to hunt down this supposed Gephardt knifing of Biden and to realize that that story was false. From Time magazine, informed sources have told Time the primary tipster was from the rival presidential campaign of Michael Dukakis, a reliable source from someone close to the Dukakis campaign says the campaign gave the video to the Times. This was an interesting revelation for Time magazine because previously Biden had thought and had been led to believe, and maybe some of the press had been led to believe, that it was Gephardt. Greg Whitney, the Times Washington bureau chief, said of Dukakis's involvement, I just don't know if your information is correct. In the journalistic world, that's pretty close to a confirmation. It's certainly not a denial. Then Time Magazine got speculative. Any number of Democratic pros were happy to see Biden stumble. Packadell, Biden's pollster, struck them as arrogant. Cadell talked about an inside insurgency within the party to take it over for the baby boomers. A number of people thought Biden came out as a glib, wise guy of style. The allegation that Time Magazine made was absolutely true. And Michael Dukakis found out that it was true when John Sasso, his campaign manager, his pollster, his manager, magician of politics in Massachusetts, would walk into his office and tell him so. I did it. Initially, when the story came out that a Dukakis aide might be involved, Mike Dukakis goes out to the press and says, no way, no one in my campaign. And he denies it. Now, John Sasso has to go to his boss and say, Sorry, Chief, I did it. Michael Dukakis is beside himself. How could you do this to me, John? This is going to kill us.
Joe Biden took the apology call from Michael Dukakis, the old. I'm sorry. Kitty and I were uh, so sorry to learn of this. This is terrible news. Thanks for calling, is all Biden says. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. And he knew why the caucus campaign had sent that videotape. Because I'd beat them. The hearings were completed. Eventually, Bork was rejected. Biden got every one of those undecided senators voting against Bork, mostly on the issue of privacy, something most Americans could agree on, instead of some specific litmus test issues of the 1980s. Uh, all while saluting his great experience and his constitutional credentials for being a judge. Um, so Dukakis got Biden. And this is something that, like, we should remember in history. So it did turn out that Biden would get his chance to be president much m m later than I think anyone on earth would have ever imagined. The one that kept him from it the first time was not yet Ailes, Atwater, George Bush, Reagan, or any of those people. It was Michael Dukakis. Well, now it's a scandal for his campaign, and Dukakis fires Sasso, which of course is going to be a deficit to Dukakis's campaign that he's going to feel. He apologizes, makes his statements to the press, and he campaigns in Iowa. Iowans criticize the Dukakis campaign at every stop now, just like with what Joe Biden is experiencing, Mike Dukakis is getting his little touch of scandal here. But it's fueled by other incidents that the news media starts bringing up about Dukakis. Once reporters start looking, they go back into history and found that Sasso, Dukakis's Mr. Politics, had used an attack video before against Massachusetts Governor Ed King during the former governor of Massachusetts' run during the 1982 campaign. As markets cannot guarantee a hot lunch for a, a, a poor child, uh, markets cannot guarantee this country will be sufficiently independent of foreign oil that we don't have to go to war for it and, and lose young American lives unnecessarily. In December, Gary Hart re-enters the race. He has no staff. He has no headquarters. He has no money. He shows the press his wallet. There's $60 in it. That's it. That's his campaign fund. I've tried to spell out in specific detail a 144-page trade bill. Uh, 100 or 125 page uh, infrastructure rebuilding bill, a, an education reform speech at Duke earlier this year that has four, 12 or 14 points. He does have polls that show half of Democrats after Biden, after Dukakis scandals, after his own scandal, half of Democrats want him back in. And the same number think the press treated him unfairly. Also, a poll shows that he leads the field among these candidates are left. When he enters back again, he'll take six points from Dukakis and nine from Jackson and gets 31%. Hart dominated TV screens like a Gorbachev in cowboy boots, said Time Magazine. He was disappointed that there was no other candidate that could take the helm, so he rejoined. I think the next negotiating position of this government, and would be it would be my position as president, is to accept the Gorbachev challenge put forward in Iceland, which is a massive reduction in overall arsenals in both um, ICBMs, strategic systems, and testing in um, space systems. And as far as the press, this time Gary Hart said he wouldn't be answering any questions from them at all. Time Magazine had a different take 
they show a picture of Gary Hart in a Santa hat looking like the Grinch. The Grinch that stole Christmas. He was, they said, stealing Christmas away for the Democrats, the other six major contenders. They were kind of used to him being out. Gephardt says about his re-entry, Nobody doubts that Hart has ideas. Frankly, I wonder why he hasn't accomplished many of the things he talks about. Bruce Babbitt said his campaign was disturbing. It had a disturbing tone of arrogance. Why doesn't he not want to talk to the press? Paul Simon's campaign manager says, We've got to get rid of this guy already. I don't have any money. Look, Hart says, I'm no joke. If I'm a joke, let the people say that. Because I am going directly to the people. He was driving around New Hampshire now in a friend's white van with a volunteer driver. Hart had the map and he pointed out road signs. Waiting for him was the floor of a volunteer's house in Concord to sleep in. Obviously, it isn't just one person or one thing that has made the difference here, and it won't be one person or one thing that will make the difference not only in dealing with this massive federal budget deficit, but in putting together a strong and vibrant economic future for this country. But Dukakis still has his eye on the Iowa caucuses, but now being seen as the guy who took Joe Biden out of the race, he has an issue there. Every team has to have a quarterback, somebody to call the signals and throw the ball. Or... And he takes to his campaign bus. He says to any reporter who will listen that he was totally fooled by his own campaign manager, John Sasso. Here's Ben Kramer from What It Takes. Michael was explaining to all sorts of people, other senators, Joe Biden fans, supporters, friends, how outrageous what John Sasso has done engaging this type of politics, the very type of politics I'm against. The phone for many days would not stop ringing. It became clear this was not over, and it didn't matter what Michael said. He was taking heat, and he was wilting. The Diddy Bops were camped in the hallways, trading the story up to spine-tingling scandal. What did Mike know, and when did he know it? He was hauling a, a greyhound full of reporters. Between stops, he made time for everyone who wanted a shot at him, taking the blame, insisting on the blame. He marched around the state 24 stops in three days, apologizing. We had six wonderful months in Iowa, he'd tell each crowd in each little town. Something unfortunate happened this week. There were many bumps in the road to the presidency. It was grim work. He looked gray and weary. His eyes were sunken in a protective wince. He was apologizing before the words came out of his mouth. He'd take any question from a person in the bleachers to a national press reporter. He almost seemed to require that someone asked about the Biden attack tape scandal. I just don't understand why John did it. I just don't understand I why John just did don't it. understand why John did it. But as Richard Ben Kramer notes, the public contrition was over in a week. And then after that, Michael stopped apologizing. And never talked about the attack videotape again. Come on, man. Meanwhile, Biden was wondering why he had never had a headache in his life, but now he couldn't stop having them. Come on, man. And you have this incident where he has to sit and rest after a few words of a speech in Nashua, New Hampshire, five weeks after he withdrew from the 1988 presidential race. Biden suffers an aneurysm that nearly reached his brain. He was just fortunate. No brain tissue was impacted by the flow of blood. The case could be made. Jack German and Jules Whitcover make it in their book, These Broad Stripes. Had the plagiarism scandal not come out in public, and if Biden was continuing to put himself through stressful hours of campaigning, he may not have made it.
discovered that there are a lot of serious problems this country's got that we haven't addressed. And I think that that's why that uh, Governor Dukakis is doing so well in the polls. I see him as an aggressive, new, different kind of Democrat. Bill Clinton, to believe Time magazine, feared that Gore winning would undercut Bill Clinton's own claim to be the South's favorite Democrat, so helped Dukakis. Clinton was going to endorse him, which would help to undercut Al Gore's Southern appeal. Proven he can work with business, he's proven he can work with a successful economy and produce results to solve problems. But Clinton telephones Dukakis and said, no endorsements, not yet, not before Southern, not before the Southern states vote here. Gore is too popular in his own state. Buckingham is risky. Other secrets. Nixon, even though his old friend Al Haig is running in the race not very well, he's backing Dole and offering campaign advice and encouragement through intermediaries. Pat Robertson tells the story of a Virginia class who were forbidden to bring Christmas cookies to class because it was unconstitutional, because of their liberal teachers. It makes the crowds angry, and he'd put a stop to it as president, he said. The issue, when reporters tried to verify this school and those Christmas cookies and who those liberal teachers were, he could not share a specific incident, and he wouldn't help them to find it. You're being too literal, he said. I do hope we are helped a little uh, in our win here. It's an impressive victory. We had a lot of good help. The people of Iowa really listened carefully. They made their choice. George Bush loses the first crucial real delegate earning contest of the campaign. Senator Bob Dole of Kansas won a clear victory in the Iowa Republican caucuses tonight, the press says. And Pat Robertson, the former television evangelist, pushed vice president into third place. This is exactly what happened at the Straw Poll event. I run the fifth largest cable network in America, and I'm, I'm, I'm on 37 million households with cable, which uh, rivals a lot of the so-called big boys. Mr. Robertson's strong showing in a heavy turnout threatened to be a humiliation of Mr. Bush, who has until now led Republican presidential polls. And because I am a religious broadcaster and have talked to people on major issues, that's why they have given me this tremendous victory in Iowa. With 98% of precincts reporting and 2,487 precincts participating, the vote was Dole, 37%, Robertson, 25%, Bush, just 19%. Said the owner of a lumberyard in Grimes, Iowa, who's been active in Republican politics, since 1953. This doesn't prove anything, just because Robertson can pack a caucus. Not everyone agreed. Leaders of the religious right hailed Mr. Robertson's performance as a sign of the importance of their brand of republicanism. Dole was elated over winning Iowa, and he expressed a surprise that we thought Bush would finish second. Chuck Grassley, Mr. Dole's leading supporter in the Hawkeye State, said it more plainly. Mr. Bush has a lot of explaining to do. They go out with an optimistic statement, the team, uh, Bush team does. Can't say I'm not disappointed, but I'm not, not down. down. Here's Richard Brent Kramer, what it takes. It was rock and roll on the Dole plane, flying east. Big Bahamas Air 727, and not a spare seat from the cockpit to the narrow tail. Anyway, no one stayed in a seat in mid-takeoff. The Dole staff was still perched on the armrests as Chuck Grassley and political pollster Dick Worthlin were dispatched to talk to the press. The political world has changed. The mountain, they said, moved an army on the tarmac in New Hampshire. The national media is there to greet Dole in New Hampshire, not Bush. Here, with the nearly next president, cameras and spotlights are up on aluminum ladders they got from a hardware store because they know there's going to be so many people they need to get over the heads of the crowd. 
Dole comes out of the plane like some prairie Bon Jovi. Dole was going to head over to the State House for serious speech now, to speak on national security, a presidential speech, the kind that Gorbachev might be listening to. But Bush's team, they had arrived before the Iowa loss was announced. Armed with Governor John Sununu, the political head of the state, they knew one thing. What Bob Dole had done in Iowa, he's one of us. They can't try that in New Hampshire. Well, they see good jobs leaving the United States and going elsewhere. And even in New Hampshire, where the unemployment rate is very low, the people feel the same concern. Not as shocking that Washington insider-turned-prairie populist Richard Gephardt tonight narrowly defeated a fellow Midwesterner, Paul Simon, in the Democratic side of the Iowa caucuses. Iowans put the blame on Dukakis for sinking his fellow candidate Joe Biden, Gary Hart, even though back in the race didn't chart much in Iowa. Jesse Jackson got 9%, four times what he got when he ran in 84, but not enough to claim victory in Iowa. And it was between Gephardt and Simon, and Gephardt won. It gave Gephardt a bit of a platform to talk about his free trade issue. I am adamant that other countries be asked to treat us as we treat them. So when I talk about trade and a new economic policy for this country that will mean better jobs and better wages, I think it goes everywhere. Gephardt led 31% to Simon's 26 and to Caucasus 22%. Al Gore, who had stayed out of Iowa specifically, was rewarded with that lack of participation with just 1% of Iowa caucus votes. Turnout was high. In 1972, in 76 and 84, Iowa had been an important statement. Same in 1980 when Bush won it over Reagan. 76 when Carter came in second place to the uncommitted ticket, but made a strong finish. Same with Gary Hart, made a strong finish. Same with McGovern, strong finish in Iowa. But had this game been played too much by 1988, this Iowa game, that it became so obvious, so blatant, you were gaming the state. It was an open question by the time you get to this election. Pat Robertson showing on the other side tainted Richard Gephardt's victory as well. If Iowans are going to put Pat Robertson in second to be president of the United States, do we trust the judgment of this state? Sure, you can get your base out in Iowa. But does that mean you're going to even win the nomination, let alone the nation in a general election? These questions were being asked. And you set up New Hampshire. Last week in Iowa, our message started to shine through. And we won a bronze. We hope that we can give the same message to the voters of New Hampshire. So this part of the race, Bush has a problem. And that is that the national media are starting to accept seriously Senator Bob Dole as a Republican nominee, as a national candidate, as someone who could lead Republicans. Again, you must go back to the context and forget about the hindsight. There had been no sitting vice president who was elected after a Republican president, or a Democratic president for that matter, since Martin Van Buren, 1836, elected after Andrew Jackson. Richard Nixon had tried, didn't work. Hubert Humphrey had tried, didn't work. And with a Gephardt II, uh, one convincingly in Iowa, he definitely batted away any consideration that he wasn't a serious candidate or that his ideas were so out of the mainstream that he couldn't get delegates. So both campaigns are looking to New Hampshire now to be the decider. Per John Meacham's book, Bush threw himself into the state with two or three breakfast trips a day to McDonald's and Dunkin' Donuts, back-to-back radio, TV, handshake after handshake. Bush tells his diary, when I'm in my room, my whole body aches. But I can't, I can't show, show it. it. Here's Time Magazine. The Dole campaign was sitting tight. On the Wednesday before the primary, it was decided not to use negative ads. By Saturday, Richard Worthland's tracking polls showed Dole going from five points behind 
to five points ahead for the Republican nomination. And at one juncture, Worthland referred to Dole as Mr. President. Not yet. Dole doesn't like that line and corrects Worthland immediately. Not yet. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. Dole campaign's thinking about running an ad where George Bush has all of these jobs, but he's never left any footsteps. It's a great ad uh, for New Hampshire with showing like footsteps in the snow. It has an ad of a man walking in the snow in New Hampshire, and there's no footsteps seen as he's walking. And it's kind of saying, you know, he's had all these jobs, but he hasn't really done anything in them. They decide not to go with it. Why be negative? So they're thinking about what they can do in this race. And there's a discussion which in within this booming Dole campaign. If they're not going to run negative ads, maybe there's another ad that Dole can use. And they thought about something that they would call an inoculation ad. One ad that perhaps the Dole campaign could run. And it would just solidify the lead and prevent Bush from ever getting back. How do you do it? An ad that would prevent campaigns from attacking him. Senator Warren Rudman and his favorite pollster, you know, and in this Republican Civil War in the state of New Hampshire in 1988, Senator Rudman's well-known figure is for Dole and Governor Sununu is for Bush. Tom Rath, who's well-known to Rudman as a Concord lawyer, says, you know, think about what they're going to do to us. Let's plan this out. Okay. It's probably going to be taxes. They're going to hit Dole on Texas. After all, he's the majority leader of the Senate. At some point, you got to raise tax. You raise taxes anytime you function as a government. Let's have an ad that runs in New Hampshire where Bob Dole says clearly to the camera, looking right at it, I'm not going to raise taxes. Hmm. It goes around the room. Some aides like it. But Dole does not. He doesn't want to rule it out. Particularly, he wants to be able to close some loopholes that he doesn't like in the tax code that would be considered a tax raise and therefore have to break his pledge as president. But I will say income taxes, okay? Good enough. And then something really weird, one of these little minor things, but utterly crucial, happens. Rath keeps trying to find opportunities to film Dole to make this inoculation ad. They make plans to film him. Uh, This is the idea that they want to get that kind of like Tanner 88 authentic video to catch him kind of off the cuff saying, I'm not going to raise taxes right into the camera. They want to get him saying this in a speech rather than doing an ad in a studio. This cutesiness, though, disrupts the whole project. He has a speech where in the speech, there's a line that's planned, I'll pledge to veto any attempt to raise income taxes. And Rath films this. But Dole misses the line. He never ends up saying this line. or He stumbles over his words. He doesn't get this exact line out. It's not a solid ad-worthy tax pledge. Rath tries again. 
setting up a camera at the Hilton Merrimack. But the Kennedy is late, and he's in poor spirits. Doesn't look very good. Wouldn't be a great ad. So no ads filmed there. No problem. Dole speaking at the University of New Hampshire. But the campaign didn't like what he said. It sounded like it was read. He was reading from the paper. It wasn't believable enough. And by the time all of these three filming attempts happen, they see a poll. Bob Dole is up in New Hampshire now. There's no reason to run this defensive ad. Dole seeing the TV free media coverage where Bush is really getting out there into the local events, shaking hands with voters, being a little more expressive than he ever was in Iowa, being more personable with people. You know, where are the where is Bush from? This was always a question of asked of George Bush because he claimed Texas important state in Republican politics and where he built his business and raised his family. Original family home was Connecticut. He went to Yale. He also had summer home up in Maine. But he does feel more comfortable in New Hampshire, clearly, than he did in Iowa. He uses the story of his own run against Ronald Reagan in 1980 and what he did in Iowa there to Reagan and then what was done to him later in New Hampshire. See, Bush has this great win. I have a whole podcast episode about it. Uh, Reagan in, in Iowa, then goes to New Hampshire and is beaten by Reagan. Well, now Bush, even though it's an unpleasant experience for him, it's in the past, he brings it up. Remember, I came blowing into here in 1980, and then I was shot down. He turned it right around here and beat me, he predicts it. Bob Dole is mostly running a kind of a TV campaign and a uh, making major speeches, living off the free media, the Midwesterners seem more comfortable where he was. The Easterners are more comfortable where he's from. At one point, you know, there's this scene where on the news, the local news in New Hampshire, not the national news, but the local news, where Bush is throwing snowballs at reporters at a local event. They'll keep seeing this on TV. He never did this in Iowa. He's playful. When he was out there doing all these physical things, and I was walking around in the drugstore trying to find a few people to shake hands with, Dole said. He was out there shoveling snow and running a big snow plow. And of course, it was all over New Hampshire news. And it was the weekend right before the primary. But it wasn't just about snowballs and snow plows. Bush hits Dole hard with what's called the Senator Straddle ad. George Bush and Bob Dole on leadership was the big words on the television screen. Bush got the IMF treaty done. Dole straddled. Bush said he won't raise taxes. Dole straddled. And devastatingly, what the ad said, Bush won't raise taxes. Dole can't say no. It's totally inaccurate, Dole would complain. I think the Vice President of the United States shouldn't say things like that. It's totally inaccurate. But the message got through. Dole can't say no. Right before the primary, Bush had gone negative where Dole did not. The whole ad almost doesn't air. Just like there's a debate within the Dole campaign about what they're going to do, there's a debate within the Bush campaign, New Hampshire 88. Bush is actually thinking the same as Dole. Don't go negative. And they have a meeting. And Lee Atwater says, we couldn't sell this negative ad. Bush thought it would look desperate. Roger Ailes is talking with a Bush aide, Bob Gordon, basically says flat out, if we don't do this, he's going to lose. And Bush aide, Bob Gordon, tells Roger Ailes, go in, make it another attempt to sell the candidate. He's your client. You owe him that. So they do. And they get Governor Sununu behind it. Barbara Bush, too, is on board. And Sununu says, look, George, New Hampshire won't see this as negative. This straddle ad is just a comparison ad. Barbara Bush, kind of sensibility for what's harsh or not, says she has no problem with it. Okay, Bush says, it's your business. Let it run. Senator straddle campaign ad hits. Taxes, all this stuff really hurts. The ad went for 1,800 rating points, 18 times airing over the three days before the New Hampshire primary. (music) 
And the TV studio in New Hampshire, it's a small state with a lot of candidates, only a couple of TV stations, you know, Dole and Bush are in the same studio, you know, Bush says something like, it's all mic'd up, how's the family doing or something like that, and Dole says, stop lying about my record. In my gut, Dole says, I knew it was over. tonight in New Hampshire, George Bush, the vice president. Probably not well known how close things came anymore in 88. Maybe one ad not airing or one ad airing on either campaign, Dole or Bush. You know, if they both decided to go positive, you roll those dice, Dole may come up. And if Dole won Iowa and New Hampshire right after each other, the media wasn't even going to pay attention to Bush anymore. You roll those dice. That's not the way it went. On the Democratic side, I love New Hampshire. Missouri Congressman Richard Gephardt said he was trying to claim victory because he came in second. That's what you do. When you don't win, you claim victory for coming in second. He didn't win. Mike Dukakis did. Dukakis is from New England, though. So, he's kind of the... So... Gephardt could say, well, I'm kind of the winner veritas. You know, I'm the real winner here. Dukakis won 36% of the vote in the landslide, but had to downplay that he wasn't a favorite son in New England. Gephardt, though, had two problems trying to make something out of his loss in New Hampshire. One was that there was a big gap between he and Dukakis. 16 points. Really, Gephardt got trounced. Right here in New Hampshire, our message came through loud and clear. We went for the gold, and we won it. And I'm very grateful to all of you. I'm very grateful to all of you. And the other problem was Paul Simon got 17% in New Hampshire. Gephardt got 20. It's only three points more than Paul Simon, who isn't even from New England, right? Um, it was enough for Paul Simon to continue to compete in the race. And it was lost on no one now that Illinois would have a solo primary coming up and Paul Simon, unimportant weird candidate with big ears, would now be very important for his effect on the other candidates in that crucial state. Gephardt's desperate. But uh, he comes up with something. A vegetable. We were always living hand-to-mouth, Gephardt's manager, Gifford said. We'd, we'd raise some money. And we couldn't bank it. We'd just spend it as soon as we raised it. It's no way to run a campaign. We needed a win. Second wasn't good enough. After New Hampshire, he had to, Gephardt had to have his name above Dukakis somewhere. And before, all of those southern states were going to vote in the big multi-state Super Tuesday contest. Gifford's problem, they got 60000 to spend. It's not a lot, but they said, what if we spent all of it on one state? They look at the map, and there's the South Dakota primary. Usually doesn't matter. In 88, with all of these candidates, it's going to matter. It's time for a, a killer ad, an attack video on steroids. One that can turn a state. Okay, okay. They dig through the op research. All the frontrunner speeches. What has Dukakis said that's going to anger people in South Dakota? And they find it. They have a tape of Mike Dukakis in Iowa saying, Farmers need to change. Oh, they're going to love that from a Massachusetts governor. Farmers need to change what they're doing. They need to replace their crops with better selling ones in the world market. Okay, I guess it's good advice if technocratic. But Dukakis goes on to say what they should plant. Flowers. Blueberries. Okay, thanks for the suggestion. And Belgian endives. Wait, what? Belgian endives? $60,000 is enough to replay Dukakis saying this quote over and over with an announcer saying, Belgian endives? We can't trust Mike Dukakis. And Gephardt, surprisingly, wins South Dakota. The Dukakis campaign, running without John Sasso, being led now by capable but new campaign manager Susan Estrich, didn't think that 
it was worth spending money there. South Dakota's not a lot of delegates, but Gephardt has some much-needed publicity to stay alive. Campaign headquarters for Dakakis, Chauncey Street in Boston, they're surprised, but also grounded. This thing is not going to come down to gimmicks. Stick to the strategy. But there's one thing that South Dakota does teach the Dukakis campaign. See, for New Hampshire, they had an attack video of their own. One to aim at Richard Gephardt. But Governor Dukakis had decided not to go negative. South Dakota would change that. As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.